0: When I, started reco- I just muted my mic, so I wouldn't be, like, heavily breathing into it. Be <laughs>
1: yeah, thanks. For some reason, um, Discord's been really annoying recently with my microphone. And um, when I started up the stage, it wasn't letting me um, talk. But anyways. Yeah, now
0: it works fine. It's clearly coming good. from your microphone, not like some. And, and same with mine. It's coming from my
1: half-decent mic, and everybody yeah.
0: can hear my annoying voice.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you sound you sound really good. Yeah.
0: Um, oh,
1: great. Thanks. Yeah. I just wanted to uh, say hi to everybody as we uh, begin this stage talk. Welcome to uh, all of you. Thank you for being here. This is your first stage talk on our server. I'll tell you that uh, we try to do these once a month. We have been consistently doing them once a month over the last um, couple of months now. I think this is maybe the third or fourth. And The idea with these stage talks is that you get to hear a little bit about some aspect of Bellingcat's work either you know what it's like to be a researcher or um what it's like to work on a particular project and today you'll be hearing from michael colborn who's one of my colleagues here at Bellingcat a researcher with us who's written extensively about the far right not just for us Bellingcat but also elsewhere and um, the point of the talk, well, I'll let him uh, get, it, get to it in a couple of minutes, um, will be to, um, among other things, maybe give you some ideas, some tips, some suggestions for how you might want to uh, uh, conduct research on the far right, if that's something that you want to do. So thank you so much, again, for everybody for being here. Um, a couple of other things that I want to say before I hand over the microphone to Michael is that you are welcome to ask questions. We will have a Q&A section at the end of the talk. So Michael's gonna talk for about 30 minutes. Um, yeah, 30, 35 minutes, maybe maximum 40 minutes, and then we'll do a Q&A. So you're welcome to uh, either DM me uh, your question. So you can type your question to me personally and then I'll read it out and then Michael will answer it. Or you can raise your hand and then I'll unmute you and then you can ask your question directly to Michael. So we'll do that at the end. And again, you have both options, uh, both DMing me the question or unmuting yourself and doing it. So um, the last thing I'll say uh, is that uh, I don't know what the next uh, stage talk is going to be about. It's going to be at the end of July. Thank you to all of you who have done, if any of you who are here have answered our survey. I put a survey in the Meta channel a couple of weeks ago asking you what kind of uh, talks you'd like to hear from us here in, in the Discord server. So thank you to all of you who have done that. If you haven't done that, you can go over to the Meta channel um, on the left of your screen and do that survey, and they will take all of your comments and your suggestions into consideration. So thanks again for that. Uh, Once again, welcome to all of you, and thank you, Michael, for being here. I'm going to mute myself now, and then Michael, you can uh, go ahead and uh, and um, tell us about your your research and investigating the far right. Great.
0: Well, thanks, Giancarlo, for inviting me to this uh it, it's uh i think i said when i introduced myself on the uh on the server a few days ago uh you'd think that this is I'll, I'll, I'll discuss this a bit later um but you think that somebody who focuses on the far right would have spent time on discord and i haven't honestly spent that much time on discord which might seem counterintuitive to some people so i I mean, I appreciate having the opportunity to well, not just certainly not just talk about some of these things and share a few pointers or observations of mine. Uh, but I'm more interested, frankly, in hearing in in having questions from you guys, uh, whether now here in the talk or afterwards for people who might be listening after and not live, uh, to because part of the reason why I work at Bellingcat and why I'm so, I mean, what, and why I really enjoy it is because it is this collaborative environment and this environment where we don't have, we're not the kind of people, the kinds of journalists, for those that would call ourselves journalists, uh, we're not the kind of people that want to hold or harbor secrets of how to, how to research the things that we're researching. We want to share the. The methods the techniques with you guys and some some tips to help you if if research like like jim carlo said in the introduction if you want to do some research investigating the far right uh, how what how to how to help you out a little bit in doing that so what, what i'll do is talk for maybe at most half an hour uh jim carlo will step in and yell at me if i go uh if I go too long, but I actually have a feeling I'll be, I should be well before that and give us more time to actually have discussion and questions. Uh, but there are basically just kind of three overarching points that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the first actually starts from talking about my background. I, my academic background is in political science. It seems like uh, ages ago. Uh, like Giancarlo, I'm from Canada. I grew up in Western Canada. And, after getting a master's degree in political science, I started working in research consulting so basically for a private company that was that would do social market research for government clients so that would include doing things like boring surveys of recipients of programs, but it would also include doing like program evaluations and going you know getting getting assigned to write a report and and lead a research process on a topic that you'd never studied before. Like for example, one topic I worked on was researching, evaluating mental health and addictions funding on First Nations reserves in Canada. Like I can assure you that is not something that I had expertise, if we can call it that, or much of a background in researching. But one of the things I learned in that job before I worked in that job till about uh, 2015, and then I transitioned into doing journalism, freelance journalism. And now at Bellingcat, I still you know, refer to myself as a journalist, but I kind of mix both of these, these worlds together from my own experience. But one of the things that I really learned that was really hammered down to me in doing research consulting was the need to basically become... Because in that environment, I was, I would always be forced with becoming, basically kind of almost like becoming, becoming, this is the way my old boss would phrase it to me. You have to become an expert on something, a very, very specific topic. Very quickly, you have to get up, get to a point within a few weeks, a few months of doing research on a project where you can sit in front of a, a client, a government client, a funder, and be able to confidently talk about the topic at hand. Now that's not an easy thing to do. But uh, one of the tricks and this is this is something that's applied to my journalistic work even before Bellingcat and, and certainly with the work that I do now is there's a difference between nice to know and need to know. Now this obviously doesn't just apply to investigating the far right as I, I think people can probably imagine when you're if you want to research a topic related to the far right that you've never researched before or a country like i'll give an example in a second like in a country you've never you've never even been to and there's something about the far right there that you want to investigate or research it's uh what you need to do is to, to the best extent that you can immerse yourself in that specific world of of what you're what you're investigating what you're writing about determining for your purposes of say an investigation for an article or wanting to know something for your own purposes or for future research uh, knowing what thinking okay what do i really need to know right now for these purposes and what's kind of nice to know maybe afterwards or in the future that I don't really need to like. That I don't really need to spend a lot of time, uh, reading about. But one of the best example I think of of this related to Bellingcat, my Bellingcat work, investigating the far right, is actually my most recent article. Is an article I wrote. I think it was exactly two weeks ago, Wednesday. Yeah, uh, two weeks ago on uh, Slovenia. I wrote about uh, the the. In Slovenia, the fact that uh, the nominally center-right wing party there, the, the Slovenian Democratic Party or SDS in Slovenian, uh, has basically long been accused of working with, collaborating with, and platforming far-right actors and far-right ideas through its uh, th- through media outlets that it has like an ownership stake in or that it has some obvious relationship with. Uh, because I think the mainst- mainstreaming mainstreaming the far right I think is a bad thing I think it, it's important to investigate it not just in you know bigger or larger countries where most people focus on like the United States Germany UK France what have you uh, but st- but A few months ago, I realized, okay, because for our our far-right monitoring project right now, uh, we focus on countries across Central and Eastern Europe, so that's, depending on how you divide it, that's about two dozen countries, and like Slovenia, there's some fairly small countries in there, countries that don't get written about a lot, and Slovenia was a country that, despite I've written a lot about a few different countries, I'd never written about Slovenia, I'd never been to the country, I had... General knowledge of the far right scene there, of the SDS and the then Prime Minister Yanis Yantia, and some of the issues with uh, uh, media freedoms there, but a pretty surface level knowledge. And it was a, a colleague, a friend of mine, who's a journalist, basically told me a few months ago, who obviously knows that I researched the far right across the region, said something to the effect of me like, Hey, Mike, you should to slovenia you, you should really investigate and write about the bar right there and that was easy enough for me to start doing it. now my process for doing research on this was not to was to figure figure out what i what i needed to know versus what was nice to know that i didn't really need to know. so it involved what what it involved was immersing myself in these on these uh Slovenian language media outlets uh, that are linked to SDS, you know, searching, you know, searching for, for, uh, for, for keywords, just in really just diving right in and saying, okay, searching and finding out, okay, what sort of ideas are they talking about? What uh, actors are they platforming and, and why, what do they say? Uh, why? You know, how? Why are they even doing it? If there's, if there's, if it's possible to, understand why they're doing it i didn't immerse myself as much say in uh looking at the history of slovenian independence since 1991 i mean i didn't like for example spending a lot of time reading about or talking to people about every single up and down of slovenian politics since 1991 you know some of that veers into the nice to know category there are some basic things that i needed to understand but right, I didn't need to know about the ups and downs related to every single election. Likewise, even going back in history, I didn't need to know anything other than the basics of you know, of Slovenia within the former Yugoslavia. Slovenia's role in World War II. I didn't need to go, go into what could be the topic of a book, you know, like, like any country, World War II and, you know, collaborations and otherwise with Nazism and fascism. Like, I don't need to even though that impacts the, the present, I didn't need to like go diving into detail about stuff like that. So I focused on what I needed to for the purposes of my article. And I think produced what I wanted to produce. And that, that is how I would suggest people here, if to whatever extent you're interested in investigating the far right, uh, I mean, I mean, we don't all—you don't all ha- have to uh, turn into nerds like me who write about this and investigate this kind of stuff almost a hundred percent of the time. Uh, don't don't do that unless you really want to do that. Um, but if there's a specific group or tendency or country or something that catches your eye and you want to research, but maybe you feel a bit out of out of like if you feel like you're not the person for it or that it, you're somehow too removed to, you, you don't like, if you feel you don't know enough, I would say you, you can very quickly know enough. If you know, if you immerse yourself, even just over a few hours knowing what I need to know versus what is nice to know. And I can think about some other. Time. So that that's, that's my point one takeaway is that cliche. My old boss used to tell me nice to know versus need neat. That applies obviously well beyond just researching. All right. Um, second thing I wanted to to talk about because I mean I think we're everybody here is on uh, a Bellingcat Discord server and listening to me talk and other people talk for a reason. I would I, I would presume you you're interested in open source research. You do open source research, uh, sharing things in in Discord channels and maybe you know tweeting or doing doing whatever else you have an interest in open source research uh obviously most of the broader open source research toolkit or skill sets applies to the far right and that probably shouldn't come as a surprise but there are a few things that in my experience are a bit different and that from what i've researched that i that i would highlight to everybody here just to know if you haven't investigated the far right much before what what you may encounter and one of them is relating to both geolocation and chronolocation now when when i geolocate photos or video or research on the far right uh i'm you i don't think i've ever done a geolocation where it's like some sort of non urban or rural or isolated environment. I think ninety-nine percent of the time, like I it's always in a city. It's always in an urban environment, whether it's a photo of somebody at a at an event or with some building in the background. So and when when you're geolocating sometimes, but you're not as you're you're very much not as often looking for natural features in the background with a few exceptions i think i think jim carlo helped with a few of, of the very few geolocations that were in a non-urban environment that had to do with like using peak visor and stuff like that but like 90 whatever percent of the time if you're geolocating or need need or want to geolocate an image for doing research or video or doing research on the far right you're doing it in an urban environment so you're 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 paying close attention to uh from my experience, if, if people have read some of the articles that I've written or also some of the geolocations I've done that haven't made it into articles because well, they're not important enough on their own or weren't necessary. Uh you geolocate by looking at at storefronts and signs in the background. Uh, especially working across different languages, which I'll talk about in a second as well. Uh, what language something is in, in the background, if there are other, you know, contextual clues, like the way, like or focusing on Central and Eastern Europe, sometimes you can look at a building in a background and think, okay, that looks like it's from this part of Europe, and I think you know you might know what I mean in terms of quote unquote Soviet-style apartment buildings, for example, or contextual clues like that uh that th- that's normally where you'd start with geolocation rather than natural features for example uh this with uh chrono location i i would say that with researching the far right uh don't you don't, don't there's less of a need at least in my experience to chrono chronolocate things to a very exact time or date and of course I think as 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 we all might know it's not the easiest thing to do at the best of times to chronolocate a photo or video but for the purposes of researching the far right when I've done some chronolocation of a photo or video it hasn't been to establish exactly when it was taken sometimes it's to establish like when it wasn't taken or when there's a sort of range when this video or photo could could have been taken. Like for example, I this is actually an example I use in uh, in training slides. Is you know, I, it, it one far right extremist that I follow or and have followed for some time uh, in October 2021, he posted a photo of himself that uh, using some of what I talked about here it was didn't take me long to geolocate to uh, Varna, the city in Bulgaria. But I wanted to know when could this photo have been taken. Now, I couldn't figure out exactly when it was taken, but using uh, a clue in the background from a storefront that had, uh, that, that according to more contemporary Google Maps images had closed, I was able to figure out, okay, this this video could not have been taken before I, th- I believe it was before June 2021, and he posted the picture in October 2021. So meaning I could I could conclude okay this photo is not recent. It's from a few months ago, and so that could help me narrow down where this individual was not. So in other words, stop me from you know going down a false lead, thinking oh this guy's in Bulgaria. Well, no he's not. Um, other open source skills when or, or open source necessities when it comes to investigating the far right is archiving, archiving, archiving. I mean, it, it it helps with telegram, uh, obviously the, the network that the international transnational far right still tends to use the most is telegram. The irony of course, is that I think as many of us know, Telegram is the easiest uh, platform to archive information from, whether it's from uh, you know, ar- downloading an entire channel's data onto your computer, which as a sidebar, it was Giancarlo who first pointed out that you could do that several years ago, and I actually didn't know that at the time. So once I figured that out, I was like, oh, wow, this is really easy. And of course, it's easy to use archive.is or Internet Archive to archive specific Telegram posts i mean in some of the work that i've done i've because i've archived particular posts that were subsequently deleted you know i was able to basically i was able to have as evidence okay no you guys this this is an imaginary conversation but it was basically you know oh you guys uh you did call for your members to go out and buy a translation of the Christchurch terrorist manifesto that's one example where that was a post that was posted I saw it pretty if I recall you know pretty you know within a few days or even weeks of when it was posted as soon as I saw it I was like okay I better archive this because this is something they'll eventually delete and they did so when it comes to matters like that whether it's using telegram or instagram which Despite Meta cracking down, is still frequently used by the, by the far right. Uh, using Instaloader to, when, whenever there's a, a, a uh, an account whose content you want to hold on to in case it magically disappears. Well, now I've got it, and you've got the photos that they uploaded as well. With with the far right, because of the way that, like I'll talk about in my last one, because of the way that their communication works. They may wish to scrub things that get them into trouble, or things that are contradictory, or you know, things that get could get them into trouble with law enforcement. So archive the crap out of everything. Um, and the, the final point I'll make in terms of open source skills: is the most of the work that I do as you know somebody who is not from Central and Eastern Europe is on central and eastern Europe. So I'm obviously working across a lot of different languages. I'm working across, like, my, I do have, I I do have decent skills, specifically in Russian and Ukrainian. Uh, Russian actually formally studied it, uh, even though I, I wouldn't want to be having a conversation too, in, in too much depth with anyone right now. And I have better sort of passive knowledge of Ukrainian because of my work with Ukraine. And Thus, I feel comfortable, reasonably comfortable with the written word across Slavic languages. I'm certainly not going to say I have much capacity in them all or flu- anything resembling fluency. But, like, for example, this, the article I wrote about Slovenia, I found that I could, because of having Slavic language knowledge, I could understand a lot of the contents. Like, I, I, I didn't need to Google Translate a headline, for example. I was able to figure out what it was saying. This, of course, does not apply when you are doing research on on a language you have no understanding of whatsoever. And the best example of that for me is Hungarian. I've written about Hungary, actually just slightly less than a year ago, I wrote about Hungary for our far-right monitoring project, a project about, well, or an article about uh, far-right neo-Nazi football hooligans there. And I've also written about Hungary some in the past. Uh this is all despite having zero pretty much close to zero knowledge of Hungarian. So when my advice would be if you want to do research or in a country or a context where the language is extremely foreign to you, you have to you this this might go without saying, but you cannot rely on Google Translate or online dictionaries or things like that. You need to have context whether it's sort of crowdsourcing maybe it could even work within a discord context or online or if you've got or in my case it was having friends and contacts in Hungary fluent speakers of Hungarian who got used to me you know sending them questions being like hey this is this is what this in some cases like hey this is what this Hungarian language channel said about me is, is this a threat is this a veiled threat is it sarcastic and they would be able to parse some of the nuances that would get lost from a quick uh, Google Translate. like Just using Google Translate can give you the gist of, you know, straight, straightforward communication from a far right group. But once you start getting into sarcasm, slang, anything like that, you you best have native speakers on call or that you can contact to run some things fast even though i've decent capacity i think with russian uh, there are points obviously where like if i'm in a chat room and there's something things being said and i don't have you know not 100 percent up to speed on super slangy russian obscene russian or turns of phrase that i don't know whether they're ironic or sarcastic or not i check with a native russian-speaking colleague that's That kind of thing is important to do if you choose to research across languages that you're much less familiar with, but even some languages that you're, um, you know, that you have knowledge of, but aren't, aren't a native speaker of. on the flip side, if you're a native speaker of a language that somebody else is do is like, like, for example, if I'm investigating Bulgaria and I happen to be. You know, you happen to be a native Bulgarian speaker. You can you can really help out a lot more than than you think. I mean, we we don't think of our native language skills as a skill, quote unquote. But in a world where you know, even like I said, even just Central and Eastern Europe, when there's so many related and not related languages being spoken, you na- if you're a native speaker of a language and you can very quickly interpret or dissect somebody for a non-native speaker that's incredibly valuable and i'll just get to my third point before i open up the proverbial floor for uh questions this this is something i think it's it's key to understand. if you want to research the far right it's key I research the far right a lot obviously a lot of what you're going to do going to be doing is looking at far right communications What they what they say in chat, what they put out to the public, what they what they communicate, what they that is where your research is going to go for the the vast majority of it. Whether it's you know like I said, looking lurking in Telegram groups, simply following public Telegram channels and 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 you know analyzing them, or you know reading articles on on. Very specific right- wing news sites like, like I was doing for Slovenia. the key though is understanding how the far right communicates. and I talk about this a bit uh, in my book on Ukraine's Azov movement, but it's something whenever I write a second book uh, still thinking about that. Uh, it's th- th- there's this concept that scholars refer to uh, scholars of the far right refer to as double speak. Uh, and it's something that I argue really underpins all of far right communication, basically double speak, as you can probably imagine, it's referring to like distorted communication that the far right uses to cloak or hide extremist views or kind of unpalatable or publicly unacceptable ideas. Uh, I think all of us thinking about any far right group or individual that we know probably already know examples of, of use of doublespeak saying, you know, and the issue then becomes when we're doing open source research on the far right is asking ourselves a question. Okay, if this is the case, what can we actually take at face value? Are, is the far right just lying to me all the time? Can I believe anything that they say? And the answer broadly is yes, but. And what, what I would stress is that if you're looking at communication that comes from the far right, is to ask yourself this. Ask who the intended audiences are. And from there, you can roughly group it into one or one of two areas. First is, okay, if the, if the communication is intended for a more public audience, like if it's something on a public telegram chat, on if they have other platforms if in those cases where it it, where it's more much more broadly targeted at at a public environment especially if it's a group or movement or whatever that's really consciously trying to present a palatable face to the public those are instances where you don't and shouldn't take everything they say at face value they're going to use terms to define themselves that you know they they have chosen and that they have chosen for a reason they're going to also use codes or tropes or symbols that most of the public might not know but uh that if you research the far right you'll know and you'll see that there's this code that there can be this coded you know double speak in uh and some of that public communication. One example I'll quickly give is actually I mentioned it in my book on Azov is a in twenty twenty some activists from the National Core political party, or essentially the Azov movement's political party, they had a small this is a really small thing. They had a, a rally somewhere in Kiev to uh for, for a, a very non extremist thing. Just a rally or about uh or you're know, protesting against possible changes to a ukrainian language law and education pretty simple stuff and so national corps was there with a banner and you know a nice branded banner but then when in in ukrainian but then when you look at the banner you realize what what they've said on it and what they wrote on it was i'm not going to repeat repeat exactly how they said it or translated in English but what they wrote was essentially the neo-nazi 14 words translated into Ukrainian but with two or three of the uh yeah you know, of the uh of the words changed so that the average member of the public would have walked past the sign and seen nothing of it but somebody who's from a right or neo-nazi subculture would know the reference would get the reference but when the when we're looking at, far, at far-right communication, the second second instance is if if you feel that the communication is more intended for a private or a semi-private audience. Like, in other words, if, if are they is this how they communicate when they think nobody is is listening or when they think nobody's reading or watching? Uh, you know, does and if so, does it contradict what they say in public? and there are ways to get at this uh one way is to if it's a broader far-right movement is to follow individuals or or get into chats uh that are almost like rank and file within a movement because that's a lot of times when you see people speak a lot more freely about what they really believe and maybe even sort of self-aware self-consciously talk about what not to say in public but a good example of my uh, good me good um a good example of this is uh, the US uh or right, uh, neo fascist group patriot front now it, for for those who who may be aware uh patriot front is very very good at getting all of its private communications uh leaked out to the public And I think it's the website Unicorn Riot that hosts most of them. And if you, that, because there's a perfect opportunity to see how you contrast Patriot Front, how they communicate on Telegram, how they communicate with their videos, the word choices they use, trying to brand themselves to the public. And you can contrast this with what they were saying in a private forum where they thought nobody would ever see it. And that's where you see the contrast of, the doublespeak where they're clearly trying to frame or brand themselves in a way that was definitely, you know, still extreme for the public, but trying their best to make themselves less unpalatable. But then when you look at their what are now public (laughs) communications that were initially private, you see you see frankly how much BS it is. And that that's a particularly extreme example, no pun intended, but when the overarching point that I'd make to end off my my rambling about the far right here is when you look at what the far right says, ask yourself why they're saying what they're saying. Are they saying something that they want you to hear and to acknowledge? And why? What really, like, for example, like, even in far right terrorist manifestos, why ask yourself, why do they want me to read this? What do they want me to take away from this? So just be aware of how the communication is inherently manipulative and that it can work on multiple levels and that you need to interrogate interrogate that communication a bit more thoroughly and not take everything at face value. Uh, So those are my three overarching points that I wanted to say here. Uh, I hope those made sense. I hope I did not ramble or bore anybody with all of this. This is stuff that I could do a lecture on and talk for another hour. And if I was on, on a camera, probably with my hands pointing everywhere and talking frenetically with my hands, but you're all not subjected to that. So.
1: Yeah, I have whatever that gene is, I, I also have it. Um, I have to yeah. very consciously think about my hands all the time so that I'm not, yeah. you know, Yeah, wailing them uh, uh, wildly. My my,
0: my hands, I I can assure everybody, my hands are not still right now. (laughs) I have a pen in my hand, even though I haven't written
1: anything for 35 minutes. Well, thank you for that, uh, Michael. That was really interesting. I never actually, even though we work together, I never actually um, gotten to hear about your work uh, in this way. So thank you so much for for spending this time with us. Uh, If you want to ask a question, um, you can do so. You can DM me your question if you have one. Or uh, you can raise your hand and uh, I will unmute you. And then you can use your voice to to ask a question. So uh, both of those options are available. While people are thinking about their questions and um, uh, hopefully writing them to me or thinking about clicking that uh, little hand button at the bottom there, I do have a question I wanted to ask you, Michael. Yeah, This is something that you said. It's a comment and a question. I thought it was really interesting at the beginning how you were talking about Um, a couple of things that have to happen for you to become a researcher. And I think this is true Mm. of all research, but um, you have to become an expert on something quickly, depending on what your job is. And you have to differentiate between, as you put it, things that are nice to know uh, and things that you need to know. So Mm. that's, I thought that was really fascinating because (laughs) it it sounded almost uh, like a really sophisticated way of saying, of putting that old saying uh, which is um fake it till you make it right like there's that old expression that goes so so that that the way that you explained it to me it sounded a little bit like oh that's like a nice way of saying like you just have to sort of yeah. fake it till you make it right and so it, I, Yeah, it's,
0: it's it's a nicer way of saying that <laughs> but i think a, a more a more a more legit way of saying that not not that yeah. you're sitting in front of a client being fake sure, but i think people can have imposter syndromes and think oh i didn't go to university for this why am i exactly now, being called on to talk about
1: so. yeah yes and that's what i've to me that's the the spirit of i suppose fake it till you make it is, is, is that it's like look you're not you're not going to be an expert the first day that you show up to work but yeah you're going to have to start somewhere so my question to you yeah. is um what would you say to someone maybe somebody who's listening to this and they are interested in the far right uh, in in so far as they want to research it and you know call attention to what they're doing um and and but they don't know where to start because maybe they do feel like they're imposters like well I'm not an expert so how could I possibly begin doing this kind of research what is a, a concrete step that you could give to someone here who wants to start doing this kind of research what is a, a thing that they can start doing maybe right now um that can be that first step in in their journey to becoming a a researcher
0: i i think i i would say the first the first step is if if you want to research investigate the far right now there presumably are reasons why you want to do that uh, it could be your own political views or whatever but it, at, at the core whatever one's politics are it probably stems from this perspective of oh I I don't like the far right I think this is I think the far right is bad for our democracies et etc cetera, etc cetera. and because of that i would wh- wherever people are based or where they're from or where they live or what they're interested in or or cultures or countries or contexts that they know is are there like are there specific is there a specific group or like think think about what when you when you read about the far right think about what pisses you off uh is it is it is it a specific group or groups in 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 your country or a country or transnationally that say things that make you want to call them to account is it uh you know is is it you know a specific part of far-right ideology like is there something specifically about hardcore misogyny or anti-lgbt plus rhetoric that Wants some wants that motivates you to do something. Listen to what, almost like listen to that reaction. You know, does it doesn't mean just get mad and and stay constantly mad to be motivated. But I know that if if there's something that gets that trigger in you, that motivation to be like, okay, I want to find out more about these jerks. You know this, or I or you know some something that just gets gets you motivated that that should be a cue to you right there to, to pay attention to that. And so, but to, to keep it manageable, like if, if, if I was starting from scratch and and done much, uh, you know, investigation myself of the far right, uh, I would say focus on, to keep it simple, two or three groups or tendencies or things almost like point form. These are the things I'm going to focus on uh, right now. Or like I'm going to, I'm going to focus on this specific, uh, this specific far right group that's emerged in my country or province or whatever. I'm going to follow their channel, see what they talk about, and then from there things are going to snowball. You're going to start to under- look at who they post, who they cross post with, who you're going to you read up a bit more about them. You'll start to figure out an ecosystem around them, and before you know it, you'll be you'll be the person or a person, sometimes the person who knows the most about that specific group or tendency in that context. Because there's, there's so much out there, you're never going to understand or be able to wrap your mind around it all. So keeping it manageable in your head from the start is, I think, really the key thing to do.
1: Great. Thank you so much for that, Michael. Um, we've gotten lots and lots of questions via DM, So thank you so much for everybody who's doing yes. that. We're going we're gonna to try to get through all of them. I'm, uh, I'm so lining didn't... them up here like an air traffic controller. Oh, um, yeah. um, uh, you can post it here. So uh, some people are telling me that they cannot DM me for some reason. So um, it, you can just post it in, in any of the channels, maybe chit chat or, or any, it doesn't matter. <laughs> any channel yeah. will be good. I'm going to go to Sarah who has a, a question um, and to ask her a question, I will uh, invite her to speak. Uh, so Sarah, you should be able to uh, talk now. You are there and you want to ask your question.
2: Hey, guys, um, Ooh, once hi. I'm at work, I'm on my phone. So if it's terrible, I'm very sorry. It's OK. Um, OK, I had a question, Michael. I yeah. am so I deal with this professionally a lot, where where you were talking about how um, what you're researching, you know, the far right and in, in a country that doesn't get a lot of press, it, it's very niche and it's very hard to almost find somebody who is a subject matter expert at the level you are. Um, as a writer, I like very strong reviews where a person is almost trying to prove me wrong. But when you get to that point where your knowledge is so specialized, um, how do you find an editor like that? I mean, besides, you know, I understand that places like Bellingcat or maybe other, you know, your book publisher, you will have a professional whose job it is, is to look through that. But if you're still out here on your own, how how are you finding um someone who is absolutely willing to tear into you is what I'm sort of looking for. Hmm.
0: I think the key thing to do is the way that I approach what I do, especially when it comes to, like you allude to or mentioned, some of these articles where it's extremely niche, especially for like a broader English-speaking audience, like how to communicate that, not just communicate it to a broader audience in an interesting way, but to be accurate about it in the first place. I think it's key when you're going through the research process, especially if it's, you know, one, if it's a place that you're kind of less familiar with, don't have your own kind, like, again, the Slovenia example, I mentioned that because I think it's actually the best one. Uh, I basically throughout the process, even before starting the research formally, you know, I, I had contacts. Uh, from Slovenia and also just from the Western Balkans, who had knowledge and bouncing ideas off of them, and be like, "Okay, is my understanding of X Y Z correct? Yes or no." Uh, but to communicate that, like to an editor, I think what's key is the way that you communicate it, like in a in a draft, in you know in a in in a pitch or in a in a short in, in a short email, you know, is not just saying, "Oh, I found." this is this is my interpretation i found out all this stuff but one really as we always do at bellencat run through exactly how you found it but but beyond that kind of justifying okay this is how i know x y z this is re- really making it clear how you have reached the conclusion that you have that it's not just you pulling something out of the air which is you know you can ref- referencing linking to articles and things and in in the native language, being very clear with the way that you word things, how you came to these conclusions, or that you're, you know, you're quoting or you're referencing the conclusions of of other people, and you're kind of synthesizing. I think that's what's key. Is it like I mean, you're never going to have one's never going to have an editor or somebody like that who knows everything. You know that that's just not how life works. and I think the key is. To get to really show and to demonstrate, not just, oh, I found all this interesting stuff, but like, this is how I found it, and this is how and why I've interpreted what I found this way. I hope that kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say on that, it it's it's a I think we run into that like quite a bit. And I'm thinking specifically of and Max and Owen are two editors, right? Um, mm-hmm. and I and I think because, you know, they get they get articles about everything, right, yeah. from like your far right stuff to, I don't know, something that happened in Ukraine yesterday to Fuca's writing a piece on environmental. So so they have to become I don't know if they have to become experts on on a lot of stuff, but I think maybe another thing that that works in our favor, in particular at Bellingcat, and I realize, Sarah, this isn't answering your question. I'm sorry uh is the fact that the open source methodology is is replicable or is meant to be replicable so even if you're not an expert on something you you would be able to logically you know like follow along with the evidence that's been laid out by the author so you can click on the links you can see oh yes you know he did post this on telegram and i can see that because there's a link to the archive right so so maybe there's something specific to this kind of work that makes it easier to find reviewers as you were saying maybe uh, but I don't know. Sorry, Sarah. I'm, to, to, <laughs> I'm not adding anything useful to, to, uh, to answer your question. Um, thanks for that also, Michael. I have two questions here that I'm going to combine into one. We do this sometimes uh, in the interest of time because they're similar. I'll read them both out. Uh, but I think we can combine them into one. So Morsaki is asking, how do you handle operational security when you're working on doing research with the far right? And then McFinn asks a similar question. Uh, Mike Finn wants to know: Are there any risks in researching far right groups in terms of physical or other threats? So maybe we can think about uh, those two questions uh, together. Maybe Mike Finn's question logically makes sense to ask that first, and then go to more uh, more second. The
0: the, th- so the are physical there, are
1: there threats, and then how do you handle? And if there are threats, like how do you handle the operational security of doing research on the far right?
0: There, I mean, there there definitely are and have been threats, uh, and I've I've got that in the past. Uh, you know, related to work that I've done at belling cat and and other and other places, so I think if you choose to not just choose to write about or research the far right but choose to do so in a way that will tick them off you need especially if if say it's the far right in your own country or a place that you know where they they know where you are roughly like in a city or a country, and maybe depending on the country or environment that you're in. Uh, Definitely, especially for a few years, I've definitely been much more attuned to physical security, although in the past year or two, uh, I've never really had any huge cause for concern. But I think it's partly because I've already raised my baseline up to a point where Physically, even though I I live in Amsterdam now in, in the Netherlands and I haven't yet ticked off the far right in this country, and I I think the risk of me being confronted or attacked by the far right for something I write here is probably pretty low. But when I've spent time in places like uh, Serbia and Belgrade, you know where I you know wrote about the far right there, uh, I would be more conscious of my physical safety out in public. You know I. Things that I, I now take as like second nature, where, you know, avoiding avoiding situations or suspicious situations, or, for example, do, do I really need to go uh, to this nationalist far right rally and take pictures? You know, sometimes you make the choice not to. But in turn, it it and it does depend on situationally who you tick off and why. Like for example, the last articles, few articles I've written, like Slovenia, that article there. There's little basically no risk physically to me of that that's just on online being mad but when, in the past you know there's been situations where i've especially when i've been in or near the country where i've written about it was like okay i i need to be like i would do things like not work in the same cafe every day or two or taking taking different paths to get places i actually still always do stuff like that as a matter of course but quickly i want to get to the the i was gonna say cybersecurity type question but that's not the right way to phrase it but i think people know what i mean uh you know the kinds of precautions that i take it's it it goes down it comes down to a lot of things it's when i'm doing research and you know using services like telegram instagram whatnot always obviously always using alternate accounts and Having multiple alternate accounts, uh, not uh, having different phone numbers for like Signal or WhatsApp or messaging. If you decide to, like, if I have to message somebody for comment or if I just de- decide to message somebody on the far end right and ask for questions, uh, being aware, especially at Bellingcat, of, of phishing attacks, uh, kind of being hyper aware of when I, you know, getting suspicious links. Or suspicious friend requests on facebook or instagram you know get things like that just being aware of that those kinds of threats may happen and they may be situational in terms of what you write about um and also just knowing what what they what the far right may try to do and minimizing the risks to yourself whether it's online or physical i hope that kind of answers both of those questions it's it's really become part of for the past few years everything that I do. Like it's actually hard for me to step back and realize, oh yeah, I deliberately do all of these things. I always look, you know, look both ways because that's just what I've trained myself to do.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Michael. I think that's a question that um, we get a lot in our workshops. Um, yeah. About like how do you guys deal with that? Um, yeah. But uh, you know for you, it takes on a different meaning, I guess because that's you, you know you do travel to, to lots of different countries, right? So mm-hmm. um, you know when you're in Canada, I always tell people this when I'm in Canada, I feel totally safe. like in Toronto when I yeah. you know, I feel completely you know I don't feel like the, the Russians are coming for me there, but here in Amsterdam, maybe yeah. a little bit less less so, and certainly yeah. maybe if I, yeah. you know, if I would have traveled elsewhere, maybe even even less so. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Uh, next question in line is this one from MB. MB says, can you talk a little bit more about the archiving aspect? What do you advise is enough in quotation marks? So how do you know when you're like archiving? Uh, Is archive.org better than taking a screenshot? Or does it matter if it's a screenshot or an archive.org link in terms of journalism, question mark? So I guess what's your process and and what do you do the things that you do when you're archiving stuff? Uh,
0: Yeah. Um, For me, number one is sorry I just got to my throat there Uh, using telegram what I what I do is when there's a channel that I follow or chat that I follow you know especially right when I start following it like because it may not be new is archiving all the content onto a uh, an external drive right away and roughly every few weeks archiving those those right away and when i go through some of those telegram channels uh there's a lot so part of it but when when i if i specifically look through some of them and i see i i just you have to kind of trust your your instinct from doing the work the more and more you do it when you see a post and you're like oh this may disappear sometime i'll also archive this i usually use archive is that's less I think because of any I mean that's just what I started using more than archive.org and had the uh, extension on, on my browser for Chrome uh, Obviously people may know archive. is and I believe same with org uh, it doesn't work for Instagram so that's I don't think it does it may also not work for Facebook so that's a pain but it does work for telegram and it works for any website. So and I would say always, always, always archive over screenshot. Uh I would recommend, and this is something I only started doing in the past year. Uh, I referred to InstaLoader, like learning how to use the command the command line to, you know, download to scrape an entire public Instagram profile, all the pictures, all the comments, everything. That's actually been a god a godsend for me. You know, it hasn't been archived somewhere online, but I have that content and a lot of times I've done it i've written about somebody and then all of a sudden the content is gone or it's private and i can't see it anymore but i've still got it all so overarching when it comes to archiving it's if you've if if there's a way to like especially with telegram just where you can archive without actually having to go through the material and you've got the storage space just do it because whatever if you don't use it you don't use it whatever um but generally Archiving is so much superior to a screenshot. And I would use a, get a browser extensions or bookmarks for archive.is, which I use more, but I also do use archive.org. Sometimes there's also uh, a a Chrome browser extension. I use single file, which download, it it doesn't save it online, but it saves an HTML file of of the web, of whatever you're looking at to your computer. So there you go. Too long, didn't read. Archive everything.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I guess. I guess the answer maybe could be also there is no such thing as enough archiving, right? Like you just as yeah. much as you can. You're good. You, yeah, that's you, true. You, you want redundancies. Work, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you're
0: gonna you're gonna have to make choices about what you archive and what you don't. Yeah. And there's honestly been things just like, oh crap, I wish I'd archived yeah, that. Yeah. But but and where you can. Go overboard, do it, especially if it's not particularly labor-intensive for you. Yeah. And again, if if your judgment or instinct tells me, oh, crap, this might disappear sometime, archive it, because when, there's a reason why you think that, and you're probably mm-hmm. right.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Michael. And just for clarification, at the beginning, you said that you're downloading Telegram channels uh, onto local drives. That's because yeah. Telegram has that feature that you can do that, right? So in case folks don't yes. know... Yeah. if you have the telegram desktop app you can export entire channels with like three clicks yeah,
0: please yeah oh oh my god please <laughs> i mean i mean like for ent- the entire chats which are gigabytes and gigabytes and they take hours i mean if if i mean my god do
1: yeah it. <laughs> you can you can you can have all of that on your external hard drive yeah yeah um and the last thing I'll say, so we got a comment from John Markey, uh, friend of Bellingcat, longtime friend of, a, of ours, excellent researcher, John Markey says, not a question, just a small plus one for the command line archival tools. Uh, they're a huge yes. time saver and usually more than thorough. So a good recommendation there. Um, uh, uh, like learn I said, how to do I, only
0: started, mm-hmm. I only started doing that in last November. And once I started doing that, I was like, a world opened up. There you I go. I am not the most computer or tech savvy. And if I can figure it out, guys, well, yeah.
1: There you go. Um, We have a couple of leftover questions that, unfortunately, I cannot get to um, because I have to go right now. It is 6 PM. Questions from a a couple of folks. Michael, are you inviting the people whose questions we could not get to to DM you and ask you their questions?
0: Absolutely. And that that applies to everybody in here. Um, Now that I'm on Discord, uh, DM me questions. Uh now or post them in a the chat if if you want them to be public and just tag me whatever whatever my uh uh name is, Misha C C.
1: Yeah. I so you've that. got yeah. That's perfect. You've got Michael's uh handle there. Uh you'll see him up on the when whenever he's online. Oh I I think you're you're off you're showing up as offline. Uh which oh which yeah. is fine. But uh whenever you're whenever he is online, you'll be able to see him in the staff Yeah, at the think, top. Yeah,
0: I'll I'll change that actually, yeah. so I and then
1: you can. No, it's all good, and then yeah. you can DM him a question. Uh, right. So, Michael, thank you so much for for uh, coming. It's it was really interesting to hear you talk. As I said, I've never heard you talk uh, about your work like this before. So, thank you so much. Thank you to ev- everyone who came and listened and asked questions. I am going to um, put this recording on a SoundCloud, and I'm going to share the link in the Discord probably before the end of the week. So you'll get a chance to, uh, I don't know, share this with your friends or listen to it later if you'd like. But there is going to be a link to this. Michael, again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming and for your questions. Have a great rest of your week. Have a great weekend. I will see you at the next stage talk here in the Discord server, which will be in about four weeks. I don't know what the topic is. If you have a suggestion, uh, DM me and I'll see if we can make it uh, happen. So thank you again. Have a great time, everybody. And uh, thanks again, Michael.